So this podcast is around financial wealth management, investment, etc. And I just want to be absolutely clear, please, please, please don't invest in anything uh, based on what we're saying in this podcast is simply opinion. I just want to be clear with you guys, please don't pump a load of money on Bitcoin because we happen to reference it. In that meeting, there were the CEO and the owner of this, this asset management company, and then this woman who had another company and a board member that had his own company. And so at leaving that meeting, I had three clients and no business. <laughs> Welcome to Success is in the Mind with me, Oliver Bruce, an award-winning podcast by Pinpoint Media. This isn't about the millions, the large houses and the fast cars associated with the term entrepreneur. Instead, we shine a light by speaking to the leaders, the entrepreneurs on the front line by bringing to the forefront the trials, the tribulations, the pains and the determination that it takes to start, run and scale a business. So, what does it take to turn your dream into a reality? Well, find out from those that are currently doing just that. So, on today's show, we go international. We have CEO and co-founder of Impressum, Ali, who joins me to talk about her journey all the way from Switzerland. With a hybrid background in marketing and finance, Ali and her business partner, Lona, started Impressum just under a year ago. And the reason behind the name genuinely is fascinating. Their business, Impressum, sets out to enable those businesses in the financial sector to increase assets under management, attract more capital and find new opportunities. So, Switzerland, finance, money, startup, you can kind to guess some of the questions already. Ali, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Oliver. I'm so excited. So you're you're dialing in from, from Switzerland. We've actually had people dialing from Africa, from America, from Amsterdam, but but never Switzerland. I mean, you were actually born and brought up in America, moved over to Switzerland. What was the story around that? Yeah, that's a great question, Oliver. Thanks for asking that. So I was born and raised in Boulder, Colorado, and then I went to university in Southern California. And I studied business because I think that's what everyone does who doesn't know what they want to do in their life. And my last year at university, one of my professors was actually putting on an investment conference in Las Vegas, and he offered the students um, some money, so all costs covered, like travel and hotel costs and food costs, to come to his conference. And in my mind, I thought, okay, what a brilliant opportunity for networking because I'm about to graduate and I need a job. So I applied and got the scholarship and went to this investment conference in Las Vegas. And one of the speakers was discussing international diversification. So um, investing outside of the US and why that's so important. And that's the, the talk that I was most fascinated by. And I actually ended up meeting that speaker on the elevator down to the conference on the very last morning. And he ended up asking me, he saw that I was a student and he was curious why I was at the conference. And we ended up talking and I directly asked him for an opportunity to work abroad or um, in Switzerland. And he didn't give me the internship or the job right on the spot, but I always say that I I'm the only person I know who got an, a job from an elevator pitch. <laughs> well, it, it takes that whole summary of an elevator pitch into, yeah, exactly, into quite literal terms there. I mean, that's ideal. I mean, it was serendipity, right? I mean, the fact that you just happened to bump into him. Do you think you'd have um, you'd have actually managed to go and, and get a job in Switzerland or you had even done that in the first place had you not had you not seen him? I don't think Switzerland. It was not on my radar. No, it's not on a lot of people's radar, apart from, you know, <laughs> some people that want to dodge some, some tax, maybe. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> They're really strict on that now, though. So. Are they? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, fine. Um, but I do think I've always had a very global mindset. Um, I grew up speaking Spanish and English, 
and I always dreamed of working abroad. And I actually have a German passport as well as my American passport. So it's a little bit easier for me to kind of work in Europe um, than it is for the average American. So I'm very lucky to have that. But I do think that I would have made my way outside of the US whether or not I had met him on the on the elevator. <laughs> Because you, are, I mean, you studied Spanish language and literature at university. You then did business and administ- <laughs> business and administration. A bit of a tongue twister that one. It is. With emphasis on international business there, and all of that kind of came to a head. And, and you're saying that that would have been, you know, what you'd have followed anyway. You'd have gone overseas. You'd have gone to Europe, and you'd have started a business, or you'd have worked for a business somewhere in the world. It's. I think it's really interesting because my whole life, when I was younger, I would always say things like, "I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to work." abroad. Um, I'm going to have my own business. And all of these things, you know, when you're a kid, you say them and, you know, some people believe you, some people don't. Most people don't believe you because you're just, you know, talking about your dreams. But I do think there's something to kind of like speaking things into existence. And I was so focused on working abroad. And like you mentioned, I studied international business and I made sure to study a foreign language. And I think just because it was always on the front of my mind that there would have been some opportunity because I was looking for those specific opportunities, right? And the same thing with starting a business. I remember sitting in my job in wealth management in Zurich and telling all of my colleagues, um, I'm going to start a business. What do you think is a good name for my business? And all of them were rolling their eyes. And, and I was just, you know, I wasn't being totally serious about it, but I, I think that there's something to speaking things into existence and making your your mind aware of the opportunities that you're looking for. <laughs> because in, in, in Switzerland, I suppose, it's very, very different to starting a business in the UK or the US. I mean, in the UK, you get a company's house, you get an account, and then you can start to sell whatever you want to sell. And, and as long as you're kind of doing the books, it's, it's all, all above board and fine. Now, in, in Switzerland, what does that look like in terms of structuring and starting um, a business up then? Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, I get asked so often, you're an American, you're you're from the place in the world that everybody goes to start a business, yet you, you decided to start a business in Switzerland, which is not so startup friendly. Why? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, it just happened to be how everything worked out and I wouldn't trade it for the world. But you're so right. The, the way you start a business in the U.S. is so much easier. There's so many less barriers to entry, if you will, in the US. And I realized over here, it's completely different. I mean, you say you start a business over here and people are like, wait, why don't you wanna work at UBS? So you're right, it, there's there's quite a bit more barriers. They love insurance and safety and making sure people don't fail. It's very, very measured, yeah, methodical and measured. I mean, they've got some big businesses out there though. They do, they do. And that's not to say they are great at doing business because they have all of these things in place, these checks and balances and and insurance, right? I think in the US, you hear a lot, um, fail fast, fail often. Yes. And failing is almost celebrated in the US, whereas in Switzerland, and I don't know how it is in the UK. Is it the same in the UK? It's, it's, I'd, I think it's actually, for me, a bit of a, a hybrid between the two, because actually, yep, there's a lot of entrepreneurs in the UK. It isn't as easy in the UK to, to generate funding like it might be out in America, but yet it's not as difficult. It sounds, and I've never worked in Switzerland, but it's, it sounds as it is in Switzerland, if that makes sense. So I think we're bang in the middle of both. Yeah, 
that would that would check out, especially in terms of geography as well. <laughs> yeah, <so laughs> um, <true. laughs> but yeah, so in Switzerland, just to answer your question, there are you have to have all of your insurances in place before you even think of starting your company. So you have to have your accident insurance. You have to have your health insurance. You have to have social security insurance. You have to have insurance for set up for any employees that you um, might hire. You have so there's so many insurances that you need to make sure you have. And then to start an LLC or um, the company that I have, you have to have 20,000 Swiss francs or it's about the same as $20,000 in a bank account because they don't want you failing and asking the government or banks for money. So there are so many things that are kind of in your way, but they are very manageable, but they are definitely um, steer people away from starting a business in Switzerland. Well, I was going to say, actually, one of my questions was, it surely was quite easy to start up a business in your world, in your sector, because there's not a vast amount of seed capital needed or investment needed because it is a service sector business. Now, that actually, that question is kind of redundant now, because it seems like you do need to have a lump of cash in the bank and you need to be able to pay for all this insurance before you've actually even sold anything. Yeah. And that's a great point that you just brought up. I mean, I did I'm so lucky that I started a business that I didn't need any funding for and that I could start making, turning a revenue in the first month of the business, right? But in Switzerland, I realized that, like you just said, it's it's not, um, you do need to have at least some cash in the bank. Although you can start the business with that 20,000 Swiss francs and immediately use it for your own salary, for investments, for the business, for rent, um, so there are, it's not like you have to have that money and keep it there and not use it for the business. So it's, it's a little bit different. Oh, fine. So it's almost like a holding account just to show that you've got the slush fund if you need it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and looking looking back at, I suppose, before you got into the world of entrepreneurialism, you, you did a lot of different things. You were a swimming instructor. You worked for a chocolate company. You then went into portfolio management and in the financial world, which ultimately is kind of where you are now as a sort of hybrid between marketing and finance. I mean, you jumped around a little bit from so many different, different sectors, etc. I mean, what was the reason for that? I absolutely did. You're right about that, Oliver. I think I'm so lucky that my parents raised me to always go after, you know, what I'm passionate about and what I'm interested in. And that has changed. And so I started as a swim instructor and built my own babysitting business from the age of 15. As you mentioned, the my first experience in the world of like actual working was at um, a brand new startup chocolate business. It was like a health food business. And I think chocolate. I like it. Yeah, it was. It's called Chocolate with Benefits. It's called Good Day Chocolate. <laughs> are, they, are they still around? They're doing well. Oh yeah, they're doing great, and it's so much fun for me to watch them grow because I remember when they hired me. I mean, um, and I want to mention that the power of your network and your connections and the people that you meet along the way. I mean. That is why I have been able to jump from industry to industry and also um, gain as many experiences as I have. It's because I've always really valued um, good relationships and I've seen what the power of networking can do. So from my babysitting business is how I got that start, my career started in the startup world. <laughs> so so the babysitting business, I mean, was that fit that your age 15 at the time? How long did you have that until you decided that you wanted to go into bigger things? <laughs> Um, from the age of 15 till about 19, I was 
essentially known as the Boulder babysitter. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Why the Boulder? Is that where you lived? Uh, yeah, I had I had a monopoly on the babysitting world. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Jeff the Jeff Bezos of babysitting. I was. You could call me that. <laughs> <laughs> Full control. That's excellent. I mean, and you, you jump ship. You swimming. I mean, why did you go and become a swimming instructor then? Uh, swimming was my sport when I was young and I swam for my university team and I just realized, so I think all of these um, jobs, it was partly that I was interested in all of these different aspects and it was partly that um, I always wanted to be independent from my parents. And so from the age of 15, when I started babysitting or I also um, started slowly teaching swimming at age 15, I just realized how important it was for for me to be responsible for my income and my finances. And I didn't like asking my parents for much. <laughs> and what did, your, what did your parents do then in that case? If, if you didn't want to ask them for things, were they entrepreneurial? Were they successful? Or did they very much just say, right, go and do it in your own alley? That's a great question. My dad, um, he's a lawyer. He's a, actually a water lawyer. He worked for a law firm when I was really young, but then he set out on his own to create his own law firm. So I think through him, I did see a little bit of that entrepreneurial spirit. And then my mom has always dabbled in um, many different things. So maybe that's where I get the the jumping around to different careers. But it's interesting that your dad was a lawyer, though, because you're, you've gone into the financial sector. He, he was a lawyer, which is, again, a professional services sector, but you've gone and created your own businesses your own entrepreneurial journey within two very very corporate worlds which I suppose maybe you did learn from your dad yeah absolutely I think I learned a lot from both of my parents but definitely my dad and his um, the very corporate world and loving what you do and prioritizing family and like values before chasing after the next dollar So, I mean, you started the business literally, what is it, 10 months ago, 11 months ago now? It's not It's not, not very old at all. I mean, why then? Why during a pandemic? And I know Switzerland, it seemed, from what the news was saying, wasn't hit quite as hard as other countries. But nevertheless, there was still a pandemic going on. I actually started the business a little bit before it was kind of a side hustle. So the background story is I got to Switzerland from the US and the culture is so different here. And I was not prepared for that. And part of their culture is um, it's much more private, quiet, kind of closed off than the US. In the US, the best way to explain it is if you go into a bar or a coffee shop in the US, I guarantee you, you'll make a, a connection or meet a friend or talk to somebody. The same thing in Switzerland would never happen. You do not talk to other people. That's not part of their culture. <laughs> so it's quite hard to network then. <laughs> It is. And I noticed it was the same on the online world. So all of these banks, so we worked, I worked as a a portfolio manager at a wealth management company here. And we had a lot of different partner banks and um, strategic partners like funds. And none of these banks had like that good of a website. They didn't have a LinkedIn presence at all. They didn't even have a corporate LinkedIn profile. And I was just shocked. I was like, how are you doing business in this? It's the digital age. Everything is is online and you aren't there. You're not occupying that space. I, I just felt like they were missing so many opportunities for for especially the next generation of investors, right? 
Are you looking for a PR company that can evaluate your brand profile and execute effective communications? Well, Blocks and PR, who work with some of the largest brands in the fashion, field sports and luxury lifestyle sectors, can do exactly that. Developing long-term relationships is at the heart of the Blocks and ethos, combining big thinking with big results. They simply never miss a trick, and they certainly didn't miss a trick, by partnering with us. Check them out at blocksandpr.com. You studied as well at the University of Zurich, and that was for sustainable finance. I mean, you've done quite a lot of academia for somebody that's kind of so entrepreneurial. I mean, it's a generic term, but a lot of people don't necessarily liken entrepreneurs to academia at all. One thing about Switzerland that I am always very impressed with is their focus um, and and value that they have in academia. And so a lot of times you will find that the Swiss, they never stop studying. They never stop learning. It's kind of like this always learning. And I think that Americans can learn something from the Swiss in that academia and learning is important. But I think that the Swiss can also learn something from Americans in that the action following that learning is just as, if not more important. I did go back to school. It wasn't a full master's. It was what they call um, an advanced studies certificate for um, sustainable finance. Just because when I got here, I I was really surprised that I'd never heard the word word sustainability in in business and in finance. And I was thinking that that was really strange and odd. And when I got here and I started learning about like um, ESG, which is kind of this sustainable investing space and people interested in impact investing, I thought, wow, how cool is it that if I could blend the two and kind of mix my love of finance, but actually make a good difference in the world. And so that's what kind of led me to just study more about it and, and see how I could try to occupy that space. Yeah, no, I, it absolutely makes sense. And and looking at the way that you structured and started your business, you've obviously got this passion for finance and you've got this entrepreneurial spirit within you. And your business partner, Lorna, I'm assuming, was the one that almost brought that marketing element into the business. Is that right? She absolutely did. So I noticed that there wasn't any bank or, or asset manager on online and they weren't using that space. And actually, it's funny because a lot of people don't get the connection between my my interest in sustainable finance and my interest in digital marketing because it, it can be, you know, concerning. How do those things connect, right? And actually what, what I saw was that the wealth managers and the banks and the finance industry in general, just they aren't prepared for the next generation of investor. They're, they're not prepared for the millennials, for Gen Z, for more women who want to invest, right? And they're not prepared in, in plenty of ways, but two of the ones that, that I noticed so much were the missing element of the digital space. So that is where millennials and Gen Z is spend, are spending, I don't know, six hours of their day. It's, it's just ridiculous. And I can't say that's healthy. And then you have this growing concern for sustainability and ethical um, eating and all of like more healthy um, habits. And you just have more information going around these days. And I think the the younger generations and, and especially women as more women start to invest, um, it's really important that finance kind of changes the conversation and is able to 
broaden the way that they speak so that they're speaking to more women. They're speaking to people with values. They're not speaking in hard terms only about um, your risk analysis or, you know, your profit. And, and, you know, those are all very hard technical terms. But bringing in the aspect of values and what you get from sustainable finance, I think that could, and I think it is, starting kind of a revolution within the financial industry. And it's so interesting because there is, you're right, the revolution in the financial industry is is happening right now. Only last week there was this whole, you know, fiasco around um, cryptocurrency mining and the sustainability of that and the eco impact it's having on the, on, on, on the climate. I mean, it does seem that people are becoming more aware of not only sustainability in terms of how they manage their own money, but sustainability and how the world is changing from a monetary point of view to a certain extent. Absolutely. And I think it's it's not only how they're managing their money, like you said, it's in the choices that they're making. When you see people go to restaurants, I've, I've never seen so many people say, oh, do you have a vegan menu? Do you have vegetarian options? Right? Because people are concerned with the impact that food is making. And then you see people looking for sustainable clothing. You see people bashing fast fashion and saying, I don't want to go to Zara anymore. Um, so this this trend is, is almost, I hate to call it a trend because I don't think it's a trend. And I think that finance is almost the very last industry that it's coming to. I think that the, the finance industry hasn't been disrupted. The tech industry has been disrupted. The consumer space has been disrupted. But the financial industry, I mean, you still have a bunch of old white guys sitting in a boardroom in banks, if, if you will, and just saying, yep, here's your interest rate and here's your money. And, and nothing has happened since the banking industry started, basically. Well, what, I mean, what do you make of decentralized finance and cryptocurrency as a whole and the future of that space? Because it's evident with banks of Bank of New York and JP Morgan and all these large um, wealth management companies, I suppose, and indeed banks, they are diversifying portfolios into that world. And that is incredibly disruptive. Now, is that the future? And is that the change that we're going to be seeing over the next six years, 12 years, etc? Now, that is a very interesting question. And I'm not sure that I can give you a yes or no answer. I don't think anyone can. That's the thing. I don't think anybody knows. What's funny is that I was sitting in the investment committee meetings and you heard, I heard so many things like, okay, the US dollar is losing value. The US dollar is not going to be the world currency anymore. Okay, so what is the, the Chinese um, are, are going to be now growing world leaders, right? Oh, but their economy is really close. Um, okay, you have the euro. Is that going to last? There's a lot of issues with the euro. Then you have Brexit, right? And so you see so many, um, you, you can't see which currency is going to be the world leader. And this, this mind boggles all of the, the bankers. And then you see that um, bonds are losing their value because interest rates are all hitting zero and equities are the only space that you can go in. So nobody, everybody knew that a change was coming and they were all trying to spot the next the next space that it was going to come in, in. But nobody was looking at decentralized finance. And it's the same, It's I feel like the bankers are blockbuster right now, where you ask them about blockchain or or crypto, and they, they still, a lot of them, at least in, in Switzerland, still will laugh in your face. And I think that it's a very, it's a, we're at um, a critical point in, in finance. And, and we've mentioned now the sustainability is coming the digital revolution is coming for finance and yes the decentralized finance is coming for the old school finance industry 
I think it's fascinating. We're not giving anybody any financial advice here, so please don't invest in anything that we're talking about. Um, but arguably, I completely agree. I think there is a massive change literally happening as we speak that really only became massively public, I suppose, middle to latter half of 2020 when people were starting to properly bring it to the forefront. And it seems to be in all the press at the moment. Everything is being spoken about in terms of decentralization and you know cryptocurrencies and digital currencies as a whole. It's it's fascinating. But going into um, to your structure of your business and how you're going to change with the times, you've got a team of three now, inclusive of yourself, and you've got a, a trainee, a trainee marketing, um, I suppose, assistant. Now, what does the structure look like moving forwards? How are you going to grow with the times? So like I said, I, I started this business because I saw the opportunity in finance becoming more digital and more transparent and changing the, the conversations and the communications we're having within finance. And um, the story of how it actually started was that I I am someone who likes to talk about my ideas a lot. And it surprises some of the Swiss, but I am a big talker. <laughs> and so I was talking about how surprising it was that these um, financial services companies weren't online. And um, my friend said, hey, Ali, I've been hearing you talk about this a lot. Why don't you come to the asset management company that I'm working for and pitch to the team on why it's important to be online? Because I agree with you. And I was like, okay, um, didn't have a, a company, didn't have a business. And so I went there and I just presented some statistics and showed them the opportunity of occupying the online space. And in that meeting, there were um, actually the the CEO and the owner of this, this asset management company. And then um, this woman who had another company and a board member that had his own company. And so at leaving that meeting, I had three clients and no business. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a good way to start a business, though. Yeah, it was. So I knew Lona, who was my very first friend in Switzerland, and I she worked for Switzerland's biggest marketing agency. And I called her and I said, hey, Lona, can I come over? I have a proposition. And she, she was like, okay, Ali. And I went over to her house and I said, Lona, I have three clients. Do you want to start a business with me? Because <laughs> I, I, I needed her her marketing expertise, right? And she was so confused. She was like, what do you mean you have three clients? You do marketing? What, since when? <laughs> and it was a very funny conversation. But yeah, at the end, um, she agreed to start this business with me. So I bring the financial knowledge and she brings the marketing knowledge. And together we are a power team and we completely know different things, but it's also been a huge learning experience and a struggle sharing 50-50 a company with someone, right? And so the structure is that um, I am the, the CEO, kind of the face of the company. Lona is um, almost COO and in charge of all of the technical aspects. I mean, she was in marketing, but like the technical side of marketing. So Google search and display campaigns and, you know, the complicated stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it, I mean, in terms of that stru- split, you say the 50-50, is it, is it straight down the middle or is there a different equity split, you know, 49-51, for instance? Uh, yeah, we we did 50-50, but we're learning why most people do not do that and why it's not recommended to do that. <laughs> yes, yes. I learned the same way. I mean, you, yes, I mean, I did 50-50. Um, don't do it, but you've done it. But anyway. <laughs> exactly. That, that's the advice that I would give everybody as well. Have you, have you done your personality types? We have, yeah. Uh, the Myers-Briggs, is that the yeah, one? Yeah, yeah. What have you come out as? 
I believe I'm ENTJ. and That's it's... what I am. Oh, really? It's fascinating. I mean, have you done Enneagrams as well, whereby you obviously have a, a number that gets given to you and then you have your wings? Have you looked into that? Yes, I'm an eight. I'm an eight as well. This is just, this is baffling. In terms of a number eight and an ENTJ and just generally entrepreneurs as a whole, how are you at managing? Because it's, it's, it's not easy for some people. No, managing is something that I didn't expect to be so hard. And I am so lucky. I have loved all of my bosses and they have all been um, my biggest fans and just helped me and supported me in when I wanted to leave the companies or when I was at the company and I wanted to learn something else. And so looking back, I am just in awe of all of the great managers I've come across because doing it myself is not an easy feat. And the communication aspect I think is the hardest for me. How did you actually land on the name Impressum? So that's actually a funny story. It was after the business was already started and Lona and I were talking and we both wanted to come up with a great name. And obviously we both had very different ideas for what that was. (laughs) And I have no idea how we pitched Impressum. But once we did, both of us just, it clicked for us. And the reason we landed on Impressum was because what we are trying to do is teach the financial industry how to impress them. Them being the next generation of investors, them being more women investors. So we just really want to help the finance industry impress them. And that's how we, we think of it. And, and what does the future look like for you guys? I mean, are you looking at exiting in, say, five or ten years' time? Or are you looking at passive income whereby it's just running itself and you're just pushing a few buttons, but actually you're, you're, you're creaming off the top? I mean, have you even thought about that yet? Yeah, we definitely have. And we actually, so the business started more as an agency, right? We had contracts from um, asset managers or VC or hedge funds, and they wanted us to do their content for them or set up paid campaigns for them. And it was very much like an agency. And earlier this week, this year, we introduced um, now digital products. So a digital course and things for more um, entrepreneurial people. So one man shows like financial advisors or financial planners. And I think that is the way we want to grow the business because we can have, we can run a course with 20 financial planners and it can be really useful to them and not get us at our capacity. So not have us have to hire a new person for every new client we we get, right? And so that's the idea that we're going to grow based on kind of digital products and have it be more the the latter option that you mentioned, have it be kind of a passive income source that is running itself, hopefully. <laughs> but in terms of being an owner-operator, because fundamentally you are the one that holds the reins, that does everything, that is, is, is liable for the future of the business. I mean, over the last 12 months or so during the pandemic, what has that looked like and what mistakes have you kind of had to overcome not knowing what to do really at the point? The pandemic changed, turned everything upside down, right? Luckily for us, it made companies and people more open to the online world and going digital because everybody had to go online, right? Nobody could go into work anymore. Um, But what it has taught me is a lot of what I do is I am talking to our clients. I'm the client facing person. I'm networking. I'm getting us new clients. I'm also going on, on podcasts and on Instagram lives, LinkedIn lives. And I think the most valuable lesson that I've learned 
over the last year is that you don't always have to say yes. That as an entrepreneur, your time is very valuable. And saying no can almost be more powerful than saying yes to everything that comes your way because you have to be really selective with what you do as a CEO and a founder, right? Yeah, for sure. You have to be a sieve. I've, I've Someone said to me the other day that most people think entrepreneurs have to be a sponge and absorb and take everything in, but actually being a sieve is the most valuable um, form of being an entrepreneur because you know what to keep within said sieve and what to let go, which is, you know, to your exact point there. Yeah, exactly. So I think, um, and one of the ways that I learned this was, Obviously, as a really small growing business, we the the bigger companies always look so enticing, right? We want, uh, you know, the UBSs as clients because we can put that on our website. And and so with the bigger companies, I think you have to be even more mindful that you're saying no and keeping your boundaries because we had a situation where, you know, I was just saying yes, 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 and. I take full responsibility, but it didn't it didn't work out in the end for the client or for us. And I think that's something that I've had to learn is that actually saying no and having some boundaries is beneficial for you and all of your clients, right? You have to make sure that you are you have enough in your cup that you can you're you can give to people and that you can provide a good service and the level, the quality that you want to provide. And by saying yes too often, it just drains you. But Ali, what does success then look like for you? So, you know, that could be personal life, but it could be also business life. What do you define as success? That is such a great question. And I have thought about this so much. And I think that the definition of success for me is always changing. So Right out of school, I thought success would be working at Goldman Sachs. And now, you know, my perception is different. For me, it looks like a lot of freedom. So a lot of time, time to spend with family, time to travel, free time. That is not, I'm, I'm not one of those people who loves to work like 80 hour weeks, right? <laughs> so that is, that is an ingredient to my, my form of success. Then also, um, having enough to give to others and to inspire and uplift others. It's quite philanthropic. A really, yeah. And a really important part of how I view myself as really successful is being a mentor to maybe young professional women or um, giving back to my family. I just, I really imagine myself when I'm at the epitome, the top of my success that I'm able to give back so much more than I'm able to give mm. now. And, and and with regards to giving back to, let's just say, you know, friends, family, entrepreneurs, people wanting to start a business, what is the one piece, the absolute key piece of advice that you'd give to anybody, male, female, starting a business, already in a business, um, if they were looking to do what you've done? The best piece of advice that I can give is to take action. So speak your ideas into existence, but take some form of action. And even if that is just reaching out to people on LinkedIn and talking about your ideas, like looking up on LinkedIn, people who have done what you're wanting to do or people who are in your industry. The more that you talk, the more you're giving your mind the ability to connect A to B. And so if you dream of being an entrepreneur or you dream of being the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, you have got to surround yourself with 
those ambitions and people who have made it there. And so you can learn what the action steps are to get there. And so the the two pieces of advice is just to talk about your ideas with anybody and everybody and find people who have done what you want to do and connect with them somehow, even if that's just commenting on their LinkedIn posts every single day, I guarantee you that will have an impact. And if people want to connect with you, and if you're wanting, if people want to find out more information uh, about you, because I know we have wealth managers, I know we have financial orientated people that listen specifically to uh, this podcast. Where can they go to find you, and where can they go to find the business? The business is Impressum, I M P R E S M, and you can find us at Impressum.com or at Let's Impressum on Twitter or Instagram. Um, and then my name is Alize Marchand. It's A L I Z E Marchand on. Um, LinkedIn and Instagram is just at Alize Marchand. We'll link to it in the podcast. But Ali, thanks so much for dialing in from Switzerland. It's been an absolute pleasure. I will speak to you very, very soon. Thanks so much, Oliver. Take care. If you're looking for more stories from inspirational entrepreneurs, then check out The Serial Entrepreneur from Startups Magazine, a digital and print publication that champions tech startups. You can find them by searching The Serial Entrepreneur, as in your breakfast, into any streaming service or by going to startupsmagazine.co.uk. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to subscribe on all major podcast streaming platforms. Without you, this podcast is literally pointless. Rate and review on Apple Podcasts so that we can continue to climb the rankings. And if you want to join me on the show or know somebody else who will fit the bill, please contact me via LinkedIn at Oliver Bruce online. Thanks again for listening. Take care.